welcome to episode 39 of the Talentopoly podcast. We'll be talking about how to approach front-end development. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as always, my co-host is Brandon Corbin. <laughs> That's all you've got. No, no, no. I okay. So this is embarrassing. I'm gonna say it though. I, 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 the moment that you said in, I was supposed to say something. A burp came bubbling up, (laughs) and I was gonna. I'm like, how am I gonna handle this? And then I just made myself laugh. laugh. Yeah. (laughs) So hi, hi, hello. And our guest on this episode is Melanie Archer. Thanks for being on the episode, Melanie. Well, thank you. I hope I'm as vivid as Brandon was. He's our, he's, so he's here for the color and the humor. Great. Except, and, except and for I can't swear anymore. Thank you, by the way, all the Talonopoly podcast. Hey, you, have Reddit, you have Reddit to thank for that. No, no. The listeners didn't stand up for me. <laughs> and y'all can... Uh, I think we actually did get one comment after you asked the last episode. Okay, okay. Please, I'm begging you. We need more than one. We need but more we than one. one. We got one outspoken person saying, Brandon, no. don't change. <laughs> because because I can't. It's hard. <laughs> All right. Our featured episode, our featured job, I mean, this episode. Bleh. Way to blow that. <laughs> I, Nicely done. <laughs> hey, it's a work in progress. Exactly. <laughs> Experienced C++ developer doing custom server development at a company named Interactive Intelligence in Indianapolis. But you can work this job remotely. If you'd like to find out more about this job and other cool jobs like this, check out the Talonopoly job board at talonopoly.com slash jobs. Dude, that is awesome. You like that? that? They're doing the remote stuff. Isn't that? Companies don't understand how, like, of course, you know, they're all afraid that they're just going to go and they're sitting on their ass like my company does, right? You know, I know the CEO sits there and he thinks that I'm just messing around there, the stuff that he says. I'm like, you have no idea how many frigging hours I put in because I'm passionately involved in this stuff. I'll go for eight hours straight without getting up coding because I'm passionate about it. And then I'll get on at night and I'll do it for three more hours. Exactly. And it's like, if you can just, if you just one, trust your employees and then two, let them work where and when they need to be the most efficient, you would be insanely amazed at how great of stuff they'll produce. So interactive intelligence, that, your whole talent pool just opens up all the people mm. that you can now hire. Exactly. Cause there's times. not a whole lot of really smart developers in Indiana. There's a lot of stupid developers and designers in Indiana. There's a lot of people that really suck. I'm sorry. It is. But, but you know, so I, 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 I applaud them. Kudos. All right. Beverages. What are you drinking, Brandon? Okay. Okay. I brought it in here, and I'm going to sound like the biggest hillbilly ever. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's called it's Pine Ridge, um, and it's a it's a Chenyan Blanc Viognier. What exactly? Viognier or what? Oh, there we go. Say it again. Well, I'm out here in California. You're know, required you know. to know wine varietals, so okay. uh, I think Viognier is what you're yep. drinking. Vi- okay. Viognier. 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 Nice. Yes. Uh, Brand yeah. up a little bit. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Good, because I'm stupid. I know that. I'm a monkey. Well, you're in Indiana, so. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's okay. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's actually really, really, really killer wine. It's Pine Ridge is what you're going to look for. Um, and it's, oh, it's, it's from California, too. I love it. It's great. Okay. It's, yeah. What would you pair it with, then? Like How chicken, Thai yeah, uh, curry, e- what? My, my e-cigarette. More wine, another glass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> more, more wine and marshmallows. <laughs> 
cheese doodles probably don't taste good with it. But, yeah, you know. I, I'm not. I'm not a foodie. Like I, yeah. I'm. I'm a caveman. Is pretty okay. much what I am. Right. Raw meat. All right. All right. What are you drinking, Melanie? Well, uh, I don't have any time right now to get down to the Linden Street Brewery Tap Room here in Oakland, California. So I am drinking water, which is actually a pretty good choice because it comes from the Sierra Nevada mountains out here. Ooh, even <laughs> so, that's special. It California. is. It's even actually the from a lovely place out near Yosemite Valley. So mm. that's where we get our tap water. Mine comes from the White River, <laughs> which is not named <laughs> which correctly, is by the way. Not white. <laughs> Mm, okay. Excellent. I, I'm actually not going with a beer this time. I mixed myself up a little old-fashioned. Have you ever had an old-fashioned, Brandon, or Melanie? Uh, I have a while ago. I'm not much of a cocktail drinker. I'm usually beer and wine. What I like about this is I got this, uh, it's a mix. Masters of Mix makes it, and it's got basically orange juice and some cherry juice and bitters and sugar. And you just take that and you do, I do two parts to one part, but it says do one part, one part. So you just take some whiskey, and then you take some of this and pour it in, and you've got yourself a nice old-fashioned cocktail. Wow. Yeah. Simple. It's pretty cool. On the rocks, or uh, what sort of... I'm uh, doing it on the rocks right now. Okay. Normally, you... I put both in the fridge to start with, so they're just cold to begin with, and I just don't dilute it at all. But, all right. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Well, let's jump into our topic, and before we really get into the meat of it, Melanie, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Well, I am a front-end web developer, and Brandon and I talked about this a little bit off uh, mic, and it's a role that I've had for 15 years, but it's beginning to change. Because time was, uh, the people who did the HTML, CSS, even the JavaScript portions of a website were kind of uh, attached at the hip to the design area of, of the, pro the process. And nowadays, we're starting to migrate more towards the back end. And so I'm encountering a lot of people who don't specialize in front-end development kind of stuck with it all of a sudden. They're usually back-end developers who, you know, you know, might have built out the scaffolding of something and then finally have to make it look like something. And so they're in kind of a quandary to begin, you know, where where do I do CSS? Where do I do where do I what do I do with this HTML thing? And people like me who just do that portion of it are actually, I think, becoming a little rarer. I think there are fewer calls for specialists and more for more generalized skills than that. So help me understand this a little bit. Most mm -hmm. of the most of the developers that I'm friends with, uh, I don't think are very good at doing user interfaces, but they understand HTML. You know, they know what a div tag is. They know how to float it. They know how to, you know, they know all the tags and the properties and they know CSS and, you know, they can do jQuery and JavaScript. Why is it that they cannot make a decent user interface that any sane human being wants to use? It's because they have no training in basic user interface principles. And uh, most people identify, who identify as designers might have this. And so what I think is really important to start with is understanding a field called information architecture. Uh, this sounds like a big kind of scary discipline and you have to have library science degree, but you really don't. Um, there are some very simple principles that have been tested for years and just uh, learning about those and understanding those 
is actually going to get you on your way. And one thing I noticed that, you know, people who are given the task of creating an interface from scratch, basically, go into this blank canvas panic. You know, it's like, and, and uh, drive it, dive in too rapidly into colors and fonts and logos and images and rounded corners and drop shadows and things that actually don't make as big a difference to the user as some very uh, basic elements that the user only uh, sees subconsciously, but they, they become actually a lot more important to the application's usability. And so one thing that users will notice is if the grid of the layout is consistent between screens, you know, like, do you have a sidebar that changes widths between screen flows? Uh, things like that are actually not what people think that they need to focus on first, but actually are very significant. Uh, one thing that is important is to emphasize consistency over, you know, the visual appeal of something. It's it, even if it's everything's in black and white, literally black and white and gray. It might prove to be more convincing prototype and get you your VC cash and all that, versus you know having the correct shade of blue and some sort of really attractive swooshy CSS animation. I, everything you just said really resonates with me because for a long time I feel like what I did that would cause me to fail immediately is exactly what you said. I would start focusing on the whole aspect of the interface including the aesthetic and try to tackle it all at once and I, I cannot pick good colors. I really can't use Photoshop beyond just resizing stuff. So I would, I would just start failing within the first 10-15 minutes of doing it and start feeling worse and worse about the interface I was creating just because I'm trying to do the layout, the, the organization of information, and the aesthetic of it all at once. Yeah. And I yeah, fail but, every time. Really, what's really uh, good about this practice is that you have friends because you don't want to innovate on this basic kind of structure. You actually want to be very conventional. Uh, your users don't really need to be exposed to your new ideas about navigation. In fact, you should really rely on what are accepted standards. And those do change over time, but it takes a long time. So one thing I recommend people do is look at design pattern libraries. And there's a really good one at the Yahoo Developer Network where, you know, they give a pattern for a certain kind of navigation, like tabs. And and then examples of why you would use it. You know, which situations is this appropriate? And don't, you know, shouldn't go in there and use it like a shopping catalog and say, oh, okay, I want one of those and one of those and one of those. In fact, you should examine the pros beneath each one of those design patterns and see if it's appropriate for the situation you're trying to mark up. They don't offer sample code necessarily. It's just more of a, an idea or construct, and it's up to you to devise the markup and CSS for it. Um, Sorry, have you ahead. seen one of these libraries, Brandon? One of these libraries of patterns? Or Dude, I... Of them? Yes, um, but I cannot speak intelligently about it because I just created quite possibly one of my biggest career blunders while, while everybody was talking. And so now I'm trying to figure out how I take my foot out of my mouth of what I just said to the founder of our company. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry. No problem. Oh, okay. Is this something that you use often, Melanie? These I... I actually am 
usually in the really happy position of having a responsible information architect or interaction designer do work before me. That's awesome. And, and that's a fabulous place to be in. It's not as often a pleasure that I get anymore because a lot of firms have dispensed with that that role. You know, these startups with only six people that they're Know, go through the list of roles that they want to fund, and that's often one that goes away, which is rather too bad, because working with somebody who's skilled in these areas really can make all the difference. Um, there, there are all sorts of little elements that you don't think are actually quite so important to your application until they're done badly, and then you can't understand why users aren't clicking on that button, or why they aren't filling out that form, or why they're totally avoiding one of your pages altogether. And it might be as simple as just the text on the labeling for your navigation. You know, there might be something that just doesn't make sense in what they're trying to do. Or you might not have even really thought through what the task is. Um, there's, a, there's a really great book to learn the basics of information architecture. And there's one called The Elements of User Experience by Jesse James Garrett. And you'll you'll look at it and you say, why I is she telling? I love his motorcycles. You're, you know, this book's from 2004, but it's incredibly valuable still because it's so agnostic. Nice, because the basic principles never fade away, right? Yeah, he he basically says, you know, don't don't dive into the visual right away, just like I've said. But he goes into further idea about how to discover what task it is you want your users to actually perform in your application versus trying to code them all up at once. Could you walk us through an example to really illustrate what you mean by that? Well, I know that one thing, you know, almost every one of the things we code up nowadays has a form. And, uh, you know, so you want people to submit this form. It might be the form with a credit card number, and that's pretty important to you know accommodate successfully. But the thing is, how do you get the user to that form? How do you get the user to complete every field in that form? And then how do you reassure the user that the form is submitted successfully? Those are all really important things to accommodate. And it's amazing how many badly um, designed applications fail in any of those areas. So like one will be the form labels. When the user is filling out the form, she's not really convinced that you're asking, you know, for the correct information. Like you might be asking for a postal code that's from a different country than hers is. Mm. Simple things like that. And, uh, you know, she submits the form, but, you know, your button doesn't say submit. Your button says, says something, you know, lively and fun, but unconventional. Well, especially if it's something financial or something that asks for deeply personal information, users are not especially convinced to click a button that says, you know, like, you know, giggle or something just thoroughly well, random and unlikely. Wait, wait, wait. I got a question. I got a question. Yeah. So so are you suggesting that submit is the is the is the label that you should use? What I would suggest you do is go to a lot of applications that you you trust. Okay. That that you use and that, you know, you feel like this is something done right for you as a user, not you as a developer, but you know. Yeah, yeah. 
and and see how they do things. I mean, there's there's no sort of crime in copying good interaction design. You know, because people don't notice it unless it's done poorly. So. Okay. No. Uh, no. <laughs> the the reason I ask is because mm-hmm. because the word submit. Um, for right. me, as as uh, the, the from a user experience standpoint, um, is always just baffled me um, because I don't think it's <clears throat> common, right? I don't think it necessarily represents, you know. So that that that's all. I, that's the reason I asked. So what, never mind. What what I would suggest you do is go to another design, not exactly design yeah. pattern library, but more design example library called Pattern Tap. And those are actual screenshots of various interaction elements, you know, like form buttons that don't say submit, perhaps, but do that kind of interaction. Well, see, but but really, because, I mean, the form can be so specific, right? The yeah. spo- I mean, most likely they are, unless we're doing a contact form, and then whatever, you know, it's a button. You, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, here's my stuff button. Um, but but most other applications have, have the action that we're filling out of the form that's so specific that that it probably, and, and, and the way I always do it, or I try to do it, and I always change it because, you know, uh, I'm never satisfied, but is to, to, to try to describe what the action that you are going right. to be doing is. Mm-hmm. A, lot of it, a lot of web interactions about reassuring the user that she or he has not done the wrong thing, yeah. or if she or he has, to provide a, a reasonable error message versus... You know, some of the really yeah. dreadful ones with the, you know, this long ID number and then sort <laughs> of things with no verbs in them. I mean, just you know, that's something Jesse James Garrett talks about a lot is, you know, using human language to actually describe something to people. Versus Rails, Rails is kind of bad about that because Rails tries to automatically create your error messages. Sure. You know? And so you know, we've all seen those where it says, basically takes the field name in the database, which is not necessarily right. the name you want to show the end user. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, removes the underscore. underscores and puts spaces. Wow, that really well, humanized that's, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of people in my life who were, uh, you know, successful adults before the web existed, which means that they have no exposure to underscores anyway, you know, or at signs or, you know, a lot of these typographic things we're familiar with as developers. And seeing those in an error message makes them think that they've been hijacked or they have a virus or something like that. So it is really, you know, really important to actually take care of those situations before you fuss over which typeface you're going to use. Yeah, I need to search around. I've been, because that's been bugging me for a while and I want to find a really be nice if somebody created a rails gem that created much nicer human you know compatible error messages are, are you really confident there aren't any because no no i, I just haven't looked yeah. oh, i got yeah, i got, I got an idea are. i got an yeah. idea why don't you just not use the damn default and you go in and you actually make your error messages so they mean yes. something? You can yes. do that. Here's the problem i have with that is that in rails it's going to use that field name regardless all you have control over in standard Rails, as far as I know, is the message that comes afterwards. So it's like, for instance, if you say presence is true, so that requires that they have to fill some, put something in that text field, it will say, like, customer trace number cannot be blank. And you can change the cannot be blank part. But what? You can, yeah, you but can't you, change you that can't, shit? You cannot oh change God. the customer trace number That's part. insane. And I, I can imagine localizing that's a real problem, too, because it, yeah. you, then you'd have this hybrid where you'd have a field name in perhaps English or whatever mm-hmm. the default, True. and then 
the rest of it could be, and if, if you're doing a right-to-left language, that's going to be even weirder. Oh, so. Yeah. What I've used in the past, I did use, like this is going back to 06 now, there was a gem that let you do fully custom error messages. And it was nice because in, in the little string, when you specified a custom error message, you put that little carrot, you know, the up carrot that's mm -hmm. you know, for exponent. And if you started the string with that, it would treat that, it would just use that whole string as is, as a literal and not use the field name at all. Oh, good. And I okay. wish that Rails just had that as a default behavior, but it doesn't. If somebody knows that it does, and I'm totally wrong about this, please let me know. In light. Oh yeah, I'd love to see comments about this discussion because yeah. it is really interesting. Well, uh, let's start. You know, let's start about how you build a layout from. You know, you're given this task. It kind of comes in. You know, on Asana or Pivotal or whatever tracking system or no tracking system that you have, an email, uh, and. This kind of freaks people out because it's like having a giant blank board or canvas to paint, you know, a beautiful mural on. And, you know, this, of course, it's tempting not to do it because it's so intimidating. So what I would recommend is starting with the grid. And this is a pretty basic concept for designers. But as a developer, you've probably not been exposed to it very much. So there are these giant blocks of areas in your layout that you should start with first and don't really get too fine about you know how wide each nav button is going to be or anything like that you're just trying to establish how where the header is where the footer is and this is you know that's easy because they're usually in the same places um Tell you bottom. Have, you have some, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, but sometimes sometimes in responsive design it might be worthwhile to put the footer uh elements up towards the top you know, you want people to be able to see whatever is down there. Especially if you're infinite scrolling. If you're going to do infinite scroll, that changes yeah. maybe how you do mm -hmm. the footer. That you drives you yeah. crazy. Yeah. You could do some yeah. vertical navigation, you know, like Google Plus does, and kind of the Twitter right. iPad app really introduced. So there is some difference. You know, there's some variations there. Yeah, the responsive thing is really going to throw even more complexity into this task. So that's why you really need to shut down your concern about you know, how big the graphics are going to be or anything like that. And you, you really want to get this basic grid going because for, to, to support this goal of consistency, you want it to prevail on every page in your application or screen rather. I mean, because you're going to have this thing displayed on a variety of devices. So you, you want this thing to be very consistent. Uh, so, you know, generally, uh, your layouts will be like a home page kind of layout, which generally is a little bit a, a departure from the other pages. It's more visually compelling and has some doodads on it that you might not find useful on the other pages. But a form page is always a good thing to lay out because you're going to use forms and those generally are, they're actually quite the meat of your application, though it might not seem that way, but they're how the user is going to tell you what they want. Um, I, have, pros, I have a quick question about yeah. the forms. Generally, do you create your own form styles or do you go out and do you have a default or do you go somewhere and grab a style from somewhere else? How do you do your form styles? Well, that, you know, that brings me to a really good point about using frameworks because going, I, you know, I used to be the kind of person who had to mark this all up from scratch and doing forms especially could be a real problem. 
because form elements are rendered by the browser and there's a lot of difference. And uh, one thing uh, product owners don't like to see is difference in display, even though, you know, there's this gamut of devices out there we can't, we can't control. Uh, there are some really great HTML, CSS frameworks. I'm not a partisan of any of them. I think they're all fabulous. So if you're not using them, you're adding just hours and hours of needless work to your life. And I mean, it's fine if this is a hobby project and you like doing stuff from scratch, but if you use the HTML5 boilerplate or Twitter bootstrap or Zurb's foundation, you'll get the benefit of a lot of these browser inconsistencies leveled out for you. So you get to start fresh. And especially form elements, that's really nice to have somebody else's contribution to to this kind of thing. And and, and most likely somebody who's significantly better than you. Well, a lot right. of somebody's. That's what's so nice about the frameworks. This is not just one person's opinion about how to mark something up. In 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 fact you can even contribute to them yourself. If there's something that really you think you could mark up better, you can join these projects. Mm -hmm. And they you know they have documentation on how to use them. And that's also useful in a situation where you're not really sure of the level of ability of your other team work, your other teammates, and they might have to contribute also. So it's really great to have this common framework that everybody can look at the documentation together and use consistently. This is a, a little bit of a tangent, but what, what do you guys think of a lot of like Twitter bootstrap, especially, and I think the Zurb Foundation and some of these others, they're using classes primarily for yeah. you to set the grid size on an element, yeah. for you to set the look of something and say that this is tab, you know, this is a top nav. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're putting these classes all throughout your document. In, it seems heavy, doesn't it? Right, and truly, your document is supposed to describe the information, and yeah. your style sheets should be separate I, and describe. Dude, I don't think we're style. ever going to get there. We're, I don't think you we're going to. No, so? no, no, no. I'll tell you, there's a very good reason for that. If you have a style sheet and it sets a and HTML5 boilerplate does this to a certain extent because it has a reset, and I think Bootstrap does too, where you set it on on an element, an HTML element name or you set it on something with an ID. Well, what happens is that later on, somebody decides things that used to be se were sections and used to be covered with a blue border on only certain situations should have a red dashed border. And then you start having to add classes or you start having to do really weird selectors to override the choices made earlier. So class, class, class. I know it feels heavyweight and yucky and dirty as you have five classes added onto an element, but it really makes it a lot easier to attach new screens to an application without deranging the previous styles. That makes sense. Okay, so, so continue walking us through, you know, what's your process here that you're describing? Well, you know, what I would say is download one of these frameworks upload, you know, just get it running and you'll, you'll have to turn off a lot of stuff, you know, it's like a lot of them come with their demo app is actually the documentation for how to use the framework. Well, that's fine. You know, go ahead and do that. And then the next thing I do is turn off all the colors. You're, you're trying to make basically a working prototype 
when you're first doing a, a layout or interface. You're, you want something that people can step through because if there are problems with these other elements, the information architecture, if there are problems with the labels, with how things are called or what the form fields are called, it's harder to discover them if you know people think that what's really wrong is the shade of blue on the buttons. So just turn everything as much as possible to white and black and gray. You know, links, whatever, just to make sure that you can assess that everything else is successful. I, I actually tested this recently on a project just earlier this week. I let the customers see this project I've been working on for a couple of weeks. And most of the work I did was back in Rails code. But when it came time to put a GUI on it, you know, something that I could actually show the customer, I went out and got Twitter Bootstrap, put it on there. In just a few hours worth of work, had just, you know, I kept the stock look and feel of Twitter Bootstrap. I thought about going and getting a theme and making it look a little unique. Oh, so no, I'm not going to worry about that right now. <laughs> I just went with the stock elements, which just happened in, in 2.1 to be very gray uh, colors. Yeah. Even the top bar now by default is gray in version 2.1. And so I just showed them, you know, I kind of thought about it for a second. Maybe I should wait a day or two and spend a little time getting a blues in here and shades of colors, like you're saying. And I said, you know what? The, what they really want is they just want to see the progress I've made right now. And if I even wait a couple more days, I told them it would be right about now I would show it to them. It's just going to reflect poorly on me. So I, I kind of held my breath and I sent it to them. And I was surprised yeah. in the days since I have not received any negative comment from them. Not one comment about how it oh looks. But they are very happy, and they like they know that it's it's well laid out, and that's what they keep telling me is well, we really like the structure of it. It's easy to get around. It looks very clean, and now I, we can very easily just add on the aesthetic as we need. And I don't even think we will need as much as I originally thought. That's you know, and also what happens with a lot of our customers is they want to move things around, and it's going to be way easier for your life if you're not too you know. You don't rely on a label being, you know, the end tab in a row of six tabs. You know, if you, if people can shuffle stuff around, it's easier for them to see where it doesn't work. You know, if they go from this screen to that screen, and it's just text on a white background, they can see whether that text is actually successful. Because often with startups, we're changing our names all the time. There's a pivot. You know, what used to be called this is called that next week, and they need to be able to assess that as a label in the text. And they can't really do that if, yeah, if, you know, it's got a drop shadow and they're not sure if really it's a drop shadow that, that bugs them. So it, I really, if you, if you don't have the scheduling time to do a, an actual wireframe with a user testing it, at least do yourself a favor and do, as Jared has described, like a very low fidelity working prototype so that you can see this thing actually in, in, in action. So how, what if somebody, you're talking about doing it from scratch, what if somebody sends you a PSD file, they've hired a designer, comes up with this really gorgeous PSD file, Oh yeah. and now yeah. you need to build the interface out of that. That's and, always and you're so primarily a developer. You're a developer to start exactly. with. You're like, oh, now I need to make this an actual working interface. How do you go about doing that? What's your recommendation? Oh, I know. You get this giant, beautiful, gorgeous comp and you just fall into despair because, you know, you see like layers and layers of weird effects and pretty fonts and, you know, things that have to be one pixel, you know, offset from each other or something like that. 
My first thing is to turn off all the layers that have graphics in them, as many as possible, because you're trying to discover that basic grid. And hopefully your designer is hip to the whole concept of these frameworks, because the nice thing about a lot of these HTML and CSS frameworks is things are sized very consistently. I mean, we're kind of getting to a 970, 960 pixel wide grid. And thorough designers try to design in proportion. So one of the bigger, more compelling uh, subconscious design elements you can make is actually to keep to a so-called typographic grid where everything's in proportion to your type your type face size so that the base font has like a certain like set height and then things are all multiples of that height mm. um, that's a nice thing about that's built into many of these uh, frameworks so you don't actually have to work it out yourself because the math can be kind of ridiculous it seems but, like the usual base font size that I've seen is 13. We're it's kind of getting to 16, point. though. Really? I mean, For the it, base? It, time was, it used to be 11. I mean, it, until about five up. years ago, I got 11. But now people are doing so many things with form interfaces that they the, the convention for having huge form labels is actually infiltrated. So I think Flickr.com was like the first that had the huge form. You know, the like 16 pixel high form label and, you know, like three elements to actually fill out and that's it. So, yeah, I'm seeing a lot done with 16 pixels and then, uh, you know, using ends as to resize things in proportion to that. I remember but having I, to, the, the guidance was in the past to use M's. This is back when IE6 was still something you really had right. to worry about yeah. because IE6 would not... If you did a text resize at the browser, you know, somebody... Needed yeah, it would just, get stuck. <laughs> yeah, the pics, the pics are fixed in IE6. Right, So everybody yeah. said do M's. But now that that, you know, now that we... If you don't have to support IE6 anymore, why why do M's? I don't quite understand that. Uh, you can size things in M's, but I'm more excited about a unit called the REM. And I, I will send you to Chris Coyer's discussion of that. I think it is his. Well, I think Jonathan Snook has done a good discussion too of this relative M. And is that on CSS tricks? I, I'm confident there's some something to is discover that Chris there. Chris Coyer's site is CSS yeah. tricks, right? Yeah. He's, he's a very worthwhile authority to pay attention to because he keeps coming up with some really accessible discussions of why you should use one thing and not the other. But, uh, you know, designers, getting back to this PSD problem, you're, you're still going to get things kind of sized in pixels. I mean, to my knowledge, Photoshop can't accommodate M's, um, but I don't work with Photoshop too often. But I would say concentrate on building the grid first, making sure you actually have this layout before you get distracted and fuss over the layout of you know, where the, the tabs are and where the drop shadows are, and, you know, is that rounded three pixels or four and, and things like that. So okay. you really want to, as you say, people want to see some, some sort of progress and it's nice to show people it in progress and let them click around on it before you skin it thoroughly. That's a good recommendation. Now let's say you get to the phase where you are starting to put all of that style information in there to really make it look the same as the PSD. How do you organize all that CSS? 
That's a very subjective and, and often angry discussion. Uh, there, there are lots of opinions. Uh, I would, I, you know, my favorites more, uh, Jonathan Snook has the uh, Smacks project, and I think it's at smacks.org. Uh, that's, I think, how he justifies how he lays it out, I think, is, is actually very reasonable. Um, there's also the object-oriented CSS concept, and that came out about three or four years ago, but it's been continuously updated. It's Nicole Sullivan's work. And again, I think both those authors are pointing out that we no longer have to put everything in one giant file anymore. I mean, we all have asset packaging mechanisms now that you know will collapse those into one file when it gets to the browser. But it's nice to have things broken out in separate files so that all your font rules are in one file and all your forms rules are in another file. So rather than load 2,000 lines of some sort of style sheet, it's nice to have everything in one place. And one thing I recommend, too, is keeping a running style guide for yourself. So have just a static static HTML page that references all your style sheets and uses an example of each of your styles on one page so that you know you've already defined a form style. You know, you've already defined a style for a blue button with rounded corners of four pixels each so that you don't go ahead and redesign those. Or, or if you share this document with your teammates, somebody else doesn't write a new style that does the exact same thing because refactoring that can be absolutely tedious and probably something you should give to someone you don't like. So, you know, that's something. I'm wondering, I'm, how can you quickly create that style guide? I mean, is it truly just a, you just got to do it manually or can I just go, if I'm using a framework, I could just go grab pretty much their, right. their style guide and it's just going to, exactly. I, when yeah. I incorporate it, it'll just inherit all of my styles and I put my few extra ones that it doesn't have in there, right? Exactly. I mean, I think it's certainly Twitter Bootstrap has a really easy way to do that because you just throw it in the documentation page. And um, hopefully you shouldn't have to overwrite a style like we talked about earlier. If you use like this convention of a billion classes on something, uh, you, you're able to have incredible flexibility with what you can do with CSS. Well, that you so but is it okay in your view to override some of the the Twitter boots you know, if I'm using Twitter bootstrap some of the look of that I I think yeah I think so I mean for one thing the you know they've added gradients and they've added you know rounded corners and borders and they've added you know certain fonts you're you're likely not to want those in your own application or you know for your prototype it's it's acceptable when it comes to actually putting a really firm branding on your site you're probably going to have to override most of those conventions i usually override them just in the inheritance you know way so that i don't edit i don't want to touch the twitter bootstrap css you, at all that's exactly correct because what's going to happen is the new version will come out and exactly. you'll download it and it's like oh my god i i have like you know 500 little tweaks i've made to this and i can't and yeah. i found this out the hard way i mean you, you'd think this would be a kind of common sense maneuver but honestly a lot of us have made that exact same mistake and will never again 
that's so where the developer in me kind of, I, I guess, right. helped with that because I knew not to fork Bootstrap. Yeah, I, I think it's not very responsible unless you intend to be a contributor to it on GitHub. I mean, if you really do think you have superior ideas, then I think you should really uh, share them with the rest of us versus making your own uh, custom version because what will inevitably happen is somebody inherits your work and has to extend it and trying to find out where yours uh, departs from the convention is, is never fun. Right. So just as a point of etiquette, you know, to, to the people who have to maintain this, because it's likely not to be you. All right, well, we've covered a lot of great recommendations and you mentioned some great resources to check out. How would you recommend somebody who's just getting started in this, they're following a bunch of the recommendations you just gave, starting to get their feet wet, getting some confidence, how do they continue to improve? Well, you know, visit Talentopoly for one thing. <laughs> I think, love it. You know, that's actually a very good resource. Um, another is there, there's this uh, curious little uh, thing on GitHub by Darcy Clark, and it's called front-end developer interview questions. And the readme for this thing is really fascinating because it's, it's a living document. A lot of people are forking it and contributing. And it's, it's really a, an encapsulation of what people expect front-end developers to do nowadays. And to be honest, I probably couldn't answer all these questions successfully myself. So I'm, I'm really using it as a, you know, a reminder of things I need to work on. And, you know, you've, you'll see things in a real gamut of disciplines. So it's not just knowing, you know, the proper HTML5 tag, you know, what's the difference between section and article, for instance. It's also uh, various things about CSS and various things about JavaScript. Then, then also kind of procedural things like how you, uh, how you can optimize your application's performance from the front end. You know, usually, yeah, you want to fidget and fiddle something on the server side, but it turns out there are actual practices you can do on the front end that actually make a very big difference, especially for mobile. And this is a really worthwhile thing to pay attention to, because if you don't know some of these things, then you, you should probably get out there and at least understand what they're about, if not, you know, become expert in them. Excellent. Well, thanks for talking to us about front-end development, Melanie. Yeah. We will now get into some of the uh, great links posted on Talentopoly over the past two weeks. And our first link is sticky menus are quicker to navigate. This is a article over on Smashing Magazine. They have so many great articles on here every week. It's crazy. But this one talks about a study that they did where they created two versions of the same website. One had a fixed navigation, top navigation, so it would follow you down as you scroll, and the other one was uh, just stayed at the top while you scrolled down. And so they had people conduct various uh, various given various things to do, various like tasks to go through the website and, and do this thing that would normally take, you know, maybe four minutes to do. But they found that they, people were 22% quicker if they had the version with the fixed top bar that followed oh, them down. 22% faster. It took 36 seconds off a five minute task on the website. Huh. So nobody mistook these for banner ads or some kind of undesirable element. They something distinguish these to people is 
something I'm guessing he has some examples of good of sites that do this well, and I'm guessing his example. He doesn't actually show what his example site looked like. But I'm guessing it was pretty clear, hey, you know, here's the logo and to the right of that are your header links. And, you know, they probably because you do see it often enough that they're familiar with that. Well, a lot of times too, the the top nav, you know, is it, when you go to the page loads, it's there and then you start scrolling and they just stick, stick it to the top. Yep. Right. Yeah. And so it's so the transition's subtle enough that it's not like, oh, well, wait, what the hell is this? I mean, if, <laughs> if, if they do a good enough job. Right. Exactly. Here's the other interesting finding from the study. 100% preferred the sticky menus, and they didn't even know why they liked that version of the site better. Wow. So okay. He had, and this is a small sample size. He had 40 participants, and he asked them at the end. He had them take a little survey. And he said, which, which version did you prefer now that you've tried both? And mm -hmm. he said six of the 40 said they had no preference. But of the 34 that stated a preference, 100% of them chose the one yeah. with the sticky menu. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's again. It's like the subconscious perception of something that they like that or that feels um, more accommodating to them. Right. And yet they can't tell you why. You know. You know, it's it's interesting though. Now that we've obliterated the fold, right? Now that everybody's got a scroll wheel or is is comfortable with scrolling, mm -hmm. um, that right. that now we have these pages that are just ridiculously long. Or if you're, you know, in the case of of a lot of them, they never end. And, and so it does, you know, my wife was always like Pinterest. She's like the up arrow, the up arrow is off. Why don't ever, why doesn't every site have an up arrow to be able to shoot me yeah. back up to the top? Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting now to see how things are, you know, evolving even more just as, as people are getting more comfortable with the web compared to what it was, you know, eight years ago. Um, so it's pretty cool. And I, I like that too, because the up arrow, you see enough. It is a common UE yeah. element. Yeah. It doesn't, you're not, you don't see it and say, what is that? I mean, right. anybody, even just, you know, the common Pinterest user knows what that is. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Melanie, just stick with the conventions, the things people are already familiar with. Well, it's like, you know, all these really fantastic buildings that break all sorts of architectural rules and stuff, even they have to comply with fire codes and things. So you, you can be wildly creative and yet not break a convention that people need. Very true. All right, our second link is introducing CSSvalues.com. I think, I think Melanie's taking that one, isn't she? Yeah, you want to take Yeah, I'm looking at this. Let's I really like this. You know, <laughs> what I like about this, it's funny, you can work with CSS for 14 or 15 years like I have and still forget certain of the valid properties and especially now is you know it seems like every other release of, of a browser introduces some new version some some new aspect of the w3 spec that's suddenly supported so suddenly you have to pay attention to it and do you, do you read the w3 spec uh not anymore does anybody really read that they're fragmenting and, get, and getting weird so i i i'm not paying as close attention because i'm no longer working with somebody who is a w3c member oh. but but at a time i was so just you know just so this seems honor. like a fun quick reference way of getting to this information it is it's just really simple it's like gosh what are the valid properties i can put in for background image or you know some people, it's it's pretty fun that some of us forget, you know, what are the valid uses of text align? You know, can I say, you know, top 
in text align. You know, what what can I actually say there? And so this is just really simple and And the way it works is you just get this text field at the top, you type in the CSS property, hit enter. And then you get all of the yeah. various attributes that you could assign. And it's, it's got uh, um, autocomplete too, right? As you start type, yeah. typing in and background, actually... it's like, you know, what do you mean? Do you mean, okay, do you mean back face visibility? I mean, for one thing, it's a great way to discover all these new rules that you didn't even know existed in CSS. You can I also mean, just this... scroll down the page. Yeah. Um, you guys notice that you just go and just look at them all that way. And if you can click on any of these attributes and it takes you right to the W3 spec, right where that attribute yeah. is described. Yeah, we get even some of the weird ones like background attachment local. I mean, that one's been something I've not been able to understand too thoroughly. So it's fine to, to read further on that. If, if you have a lot of time or you have insomnia, you know, some of these actually might be very good treatments for that. Excellent. Link number three, Pagoda Box is easier than Amazon Web Services, but more customizable than Heroku. I'll be honest, when I first, <laughs> I picked this one off the list because I really like platform as a service offerings. You know, I don't, I use Heroku exclusively right now, but I don't want to be tied to it forever. But when I did look at this, I kind of went in with a bias, like, all right, you know, it's going to be <laughs> kind of a rinky dink little pass offering and I'm probably not going to be that interested in it. And I started reading, this is a TechCrunch article, like, all right, this is basically just, you know, like an advertisement for them. And I go through it and I'm like, all right, I'll click through to the page. And I go to the Pagoda Box page. And I'm like, wow, wow. I just sit back for a minute like this. This looks pretty good. And I start surfing around a little bit. They have a lot of cool stuff. Let me tell you about some of this cool stuff they have. They have basically created, it's, it's very similar to Heroku, but it's cheaper than Heroku. But they've created this ability to have caching, and web workers and private databases or multi-tenanted databases. You can have writable directories on here, cron jobs, a lot of the things that you're used to with Heroku, but then you can go even further and tweak a lot of this. You can really say, this is, this, I, I want this many hundreds of megabytes per instance. I want, you know, I want my writable directories to have this many gigabytes for each of my instances. You can have all, this cool all these cool options that you cannot get on Heroku. And especially the App Cafe caught my attention because I thought initially this would be add-ons like Heroku has. This is actually quick start installs for common PHP applications, which yeah. PHP, unfortunately, is the only language they currently yeah. support. They say yeah. that Ruby and Python are coming soon. But mm -hmm. if you want to throw a WordPress up, install up on here, you can start with their free version, which you can get one worker for free. 10 megabytes of, uh, I believe it's memcache, but cache for free. Basically every single option that they have, every resource starts with a free level, which is better than Heroku's offering. Yeah. And somebody could come here and just install WordPress and be up and running in seconds with all for free. That's pretty badass. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I wish they had add-ons. I do wish that they had that as well. I think Heroku's got an advantage there. You, uh, that, no, there's no doubt they will. I mean, that's that's where I mean, because you 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 can actually can you buy there at, at that through Heroku, so it's a marketplace. Yeah, and it, that's a good point too. Many of the add-ons that are in the Heroku marketplace are really just doing that as an easier way to attach them to your instance. But you with Pagoda Box, you could easily go out to Web Solar set up yeah. direct through web solar's site set up that add-on and then just use you know config it into your application that way you can still do all of that but i like the extra control this gives you and the dashboard did you see the dashboard for this they they kind of show a quick 
uh, screenshot of it on the TechCrunch page. Kind of ugly. It's ugly, but it gives you more <laughs> info than Heroku. It's their lo-fi prototype. It's their lo-fi <laughs> prototype. It's all it's all gray and white, absolutely. But it gives you some stats on here. They said that one of their customers actually has the secretary keep this open, which seems a little weird, but that way she could actually know when to scale it up or down by you know easily looking at this thing. You can get all this data. Normally with Heroku, you'd have to have New Relic and check New Relic and do all that stuff. Here, it's all in one dashboard. I still like having access to my server. True. So I, I can't get past that personally. And you guys are all probably right to just make it so it works on these platforms. But I just I, I, I want to have, you know, root access to be able to do whatever the hell I need to do. Yeah, I'm not like that. But I like these platforms as a service thing. And, and I kudos to Pagoda for doing what they're doing. And, you know, they're. They're in a crowded market and they're kind of an unknown player, but I think they've they're onto something. I think they've got some really good stuff here. So if you're interested in doing some PHP programs and putting them up on a platform like this, check it out. All right, Brandon, you get the last link here, so take it away. Well, first, let me. Am, am I waving in and out? No, you're good. Okay, great, because you are, and so it's yes. driving me crazy. Oh. Yeah, I'm hearing it too. Well, luckily I'm recording. Okay, good. Here, so so uh, hopefully it's at least it's, it's, if it's coming to you, then we'll have it recorded. Yeah, this uh, boot snips, which for whatever reason, the name seems very dirty. Um, <laughs> I, and I don't know what it is, right? Because it's not, but but it's badass. So if you've used Bootstrap, like me, if, if you're like me, I go to their example site that they have all the stuff. I right-click, I inspect the DOM element. I then go into my inspector and I right-click and I copy as HTML and I paste it into my code. This has like a ton of things like user profiles and table examples and, you know, uh, uh, user logins and account creation. And I mean, it just has, it, it only has like, <laughs> what is it? Twelve things right now. One, two, three. Yeah. Well, Maybe two back pages. To a pattern library too, because they're yeah, not like yeah. highly designed things, but they're just nicely designed. I mean, they're very subtle. You could, you know, foof them up as much as you want with all sorts. Exactly. Of stuff. So it's cool. It's cool. I mean, I, I highly recommend checking it. And you literally you can just click view, and it shows you what the HTML is, and you select the code below, you copy, paste, boom, you're ready to go. It's 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 cool. Check it out. It's nice. And an extra note about that. Right now, all the snippets on here are provided by the owner of the website, but he is soon going to open it to user contribution, and I think that's when it's going to get really exciting. Well, let's yeah. give this dude some props because he's only right. got one, he's only got one tweet. Or at least on page one. Let me see what on the name. I showed thirty-six tweets up here. Well, thirty-six. He's only got thirty-six. So let's yeah. let's we'll just give this boy. Well, I've, I've just followed him, or at least I've at least followed Bootstrap, Bootstrap account. So <laughs> it's dirty. It's dirty, <laughs> and I don't know why. Uh, you know, out here in the West Coast, we could think of ways to make it dirty. I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Well, on that note, we're gonna wrap this up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard. Find us on iTunes or anywhere else you can find us on the web. Leave us a review and rank us a little higher so more people can find this great podcast. Thanks a lot. Until next time, keep hacking.